When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. When the earth moved, the houses fell to the ground within seconds, jolted when the ground stopped swaying and crushed everything that had remained. The girls were not the only ones left crying below. The whole street swayed. The earth rippled like a carpet heaving itself of crumbs and dirt that a distracted housekeeper had forgotten to sweep away. I left my stand and all my wares, the piles of mango, the eggs. They would fall, smash against the ground. The packs of chiclets, the ripe avocados, and made my way toward the voices, not thinking of my own small house up and away in the hills. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Professor Miriam Chassi, whose fourth novel imagines the voices of survivors of the 2010 earthquake in Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital city that killed over 200,000 people, displaced over 2 million, destroyed millions of homes and properties, and unveiled deep-seated inequalities and legacies of Haiti's colonial past. To this day, there are thousands who've never received the help they needed to rebuild their lives. And Professor Chancy wants to remember what happened to a place that's a huge part of her being. I think of this novel, What Storm, What Thunder, as a plaintive and beautiful love song to Haiti. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's it's wonderful to be with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So it's January 12th, 2010, and the earthquake hits the center of Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti. Where were you, and what do you remember about that moment? Well, the earthquake hit, um, if I remember correctly, just a little bit before 5 p.m., January 12th, and I was about to walk into a three-hour seminar, and so I received a text letting me know that something had happened in Haiti and to check the news, Uh, but I had to walk into my class and teach. So three hours later, I emerged to check the news to find out that a massive earthquake had hit, you know, the capital of Haiti where I was born. And immediately set about to contact my parents, who at the time were living in Canada. Um, and we began a journey of trying to get in contact with people on the ground. But of course, for the first several days to a couple of weeks, most systems were not working because the, the earthquake was so massive that it knocked out uh, you know, different ways that we could contact people, whether it was telephones or you know, all of that. Um, And that was actually my initiation to social media through a student to try and contact people who had internet access on the ground, 
uh, to find people. And that took, took weeks. And it was really just a terrible, terrible time. I imagine so. So how then did you begin, when did you begin to write this novel? So it actually took me three years to decide to work on the novel. I didn't start until 2013. And the reason for that is that, um, you know, very shortly after the earthquake, uh, my last novel had appeared, The Loneliness of Angels. And I gave some readings, you know, to fundraisers for Haiti earthquake relief at the time. But then I, I was set on a course for about three years of just giving talks on the aftermath of the earthquake because I'm a specialist on Haitian women's uh, issues and, uh, you know, telling people best practices. So during that time, I was really engaged with survival, right, with people who had survived the earthquake and how we on the outside could help people on the ground uh, regain, you know, their futures in a certain sense. And it wasn't until 2013 when that kind of work died down and I had been a writer in residence uh, at UWE in Trinidad and I saw other Caribbean writers and artists engage with the aftermath of the earthquake, what it meant to them, but I realized that I too had something to add to that conversation as a creative writer. Mm. Ma Lu begins telling the story by recalling the devastation of the earthquake. How did you decide to give her the first and last word in the novel? Yeah, so the, the novel is organized through 10 narrative voices. And as, as you say, Malou begins and, and she bookends the novel. That's how I think of her. And I gave her that, that responsibility, I would say, because I think market women are very much emblematic of places like Port-au-Prince. So when you see pictures, you know, either in good times or bad, we see pictures of these women carrying huge loads. Um, but we don't often see conversations with market women. They know everything about the society. They encounter everyone. And so when I was working on the novel, I realized that the market itself would be a kind of actor in the novel because everyone has to go to market, you know, for their food staples. Uh, but also that I wanted to give a market woman a, a, a central voice in the novel because she would know so many of the other characters, but she would also know so much about the society I also happen to be the great-granddaughter of a market woman, and I wanted to honor my great-grandmother through this character. Oh, that's so lovely. So um, of the 10 people, I'm going to randomly ask you a few questions. Uh, um, Richard is in Haiti trying to sell bottled water, which is really kind of funny. What's redeemable, uh, what's redeemable about him? Was it enough that he paid for his daughter's schooling? So um, the way the novel is organized is that you have three different family groups and you meet different members of those families, you know, through those 10 narrative voices. And Richard is a multimillionaire. He's made his fortune uh, bottling water and selling it all over the world. And he is also the son of Malou, but he doesn't acknowledge uh, that relationship and doesn't acknowledge that he's become very successful in business because he's the son of a market woman who is, you know, a business person. Um, and he does finance his natural daughter's um, education, Anne, who you find as an adult in the novel, who has become an architect. And when we find her in the novel, she's actually working for an NGO in Rwanda. And what calls him back to Haiti is that Anne's mother 
has passed away before the earthquake. And he decides to turn this into a business venture. Why not sell water, you know, to the poor in Haiti? And of course, his return really has him face himself. Um, so one of the things I was trying to do in the novel was to give a sense of the wide range of, um, you know, responses to the earthquake, both the experience of the earthquake and the response to it. And with Risha, we have somebody who is very wealthy, knows Haiti intimately, but has rejected everything he knows about it. Through, so through his, his storyline, we see him come face to face with what he's abandoned and perhaps an awakening to the responsibilities other than his daughter that he has neglected. And without giving it away for your readers, uh, you know, for the listeners and, and my readers, uh, what happens to him is that he's confronted with the, the force of um, the natural resources that he depletes with water specifically. Yeah, that was, that part was uh, kind of macabre. Um, let's talk about Anne that as a trained architect, she has a lot to say. Yes. Yeah, because one of the reasons that the earthquake was so devastating to so many, this is, you know, Poe Place was built for a quarter of a million people, 250,000 people. And at the time of the earthquake had, I think, over 3 million. And, um, and so building codes have not been observed in many cases, especially, you know, among those who don't have the resources to build according to code. And this is not to say that there aren't um, wonderful Haitian architects. There are. Um, and on my mother's side, there are a number of engineers who went back and stayed in Haiti and their buildings did not fall. And I myself started in architecture, which is partly why I lent that to Anne as a, as a profession. And so, you know, one of the things that she highlights are the ways in which Haitian professionals often don't have a say in the building of their own country. So even she, as a professional, is displaced to yet another country where she can find work, you know, to do, uh, you know, the architecture that she wants to do. And, but then is called back by a colleague, you know, saying that Haiti needs her, but then also has to confront a number of things in terms of a level of devastation that she's not equipped to deal with. Um, and so Anne is in a way, you know, someone who knows Haiti intimately, but also doesn't have all of the capacity you know, to respond, but she does what she can. And, and she does enter the IDP camps and does the kind of, you know, ground floor work that people needed to do in those first few weeks, which is to assess the damage and to go from there. It took a, a little reading to figure out that the three families, that all the 10 characters, they're all interrelated in some way. Um, what is Richard's relationship with Dieudonné? So Richard is uh, cousins, you know, distant cousins, as the novel says, to Dieudonné and another character named uh, Leopold. And um, so Dieudonné is the best friend of Sonia. And Sonia is a, a sex worker in one of the big hotels where Richard is staying. And uh, Dieudonné is, in the sense, he's both her best friend and her fixer. And Leopold is a Trinidadian trafficker who is of Haitian, you know, descent, part Haitian descent, who goes to Haiti in order to make his fortune, you know, through trafficking. And this is how those three men, Richard, Dieudonné, and um, 
<laughs> Leopold, thank you, are all related, uh, but in this kind of distant way that is very particular or, you know, this is something that you find in the islands that often people are related, even in a distant way, you know, within the same island, but sometimes across the islands. And so that's how I connected them. And that's how then they find, they naturally find each other at the hotel and start having a conversation at the time, pre-earthquake, about the future of Haiti. Do you think Leopold's experience during the earthquake um, changes him? Absolutely. And, and this is part of, of what I was trying to affect in the novel so that the reader has a feeling, a very intimate sense of what people might have gone through, not just in, at the moment of the earthquake, right, and then the aftershocks, but the ways in which the experience of the earthquake could really change a person, but change them in different ways. Um, so in Leopold, you have someone who you know, has been involved in uh, trafficking and things that he has not really thought much about, except that he is getting older. He has lost most of his children because he was not a responsible you know, parent. And he has one child that he still cares for who's quite small. And in that moment of realizing that he might lose his life, he's trapped in an elevator lift in the hotel. Um, he starts rethinking his entire life and rethinking the kind of relationship he could have with his daughter if he changed that life. Um, and so, you know, but this is not to say that everyone who experienced the earthquake had a, a, that kind of awakening. Some, some did not, but he happens to be one of the people who does. Because you kind of want to hear about transformation after a life threatening. Um, Diodane and Sonia's relationship is, you, that's an interesting way to say it, that he's her fixer. I don't know if you say that in the book, but it's true. But she is also very important to him. She's beautiful and smart. And um, everybody is so concerned because it's not what they dreamt of for her. I, I found it very interesting, their relationship and how they, it was, it was unusual. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they're two characters that represent what in Haiti is called the M community. And so they are, they identify as queer. Uh, and what is interesting about Sonia for me is that she comes from, you know, clearly a very poor family, uh, but she's a very beautiful woman. And one of the things that she knows because she doesn't have leverage economically is that she has very narrow choices in terms of what her future might be like. And one of the, the possibilities is that she might be exploited, you know, because of her beauty, which is why she decides to become, to, she makes the decision to become a sex worker so that she can control what happens to her body and she can control, you know, who she, who accesses her and then make money among the rich. And, and she has, before she meets Dioudoné, she just thinks, well, I'll become a rich man's mistress and this is the way out of poverty, after she meets Dudoni, who's someone like herself, she realizes that maybe they can work together and they become the best of friends to maybe buy a house, maybe have a future, you know, with their chosen family up in the hills in Haiti, and that it could be something different. I mean, there's also a hint, a suggestion that she might be in love with Dudoni, but Dudoni is, you know, clearly more interested in, in men than he is in women. And so that she is satisfied with only having him as a best friend. But then, you know, what he tells her is that the most important thing is that they love each other unconditionally. And this is also what 
binds them, but also helps them to survive. And the other thing that helps them to survive is that they have a very deep spiritual connection to, you know, something greater than, you know, sort of the material world that one can see. And you see that at the beginning of Sonia's section, where she talks about Judoni having an intuition that something was wrong, that something is going to happen on this particular day. And he sees visions of a man who they both interpret to be Baron Sandi, which is the lower god of death. And it's what leads them to leave the hotel before they're ready to, in fact, but it's what saves their lives. Right. She's also interesting because here's the world she lives in, sex trafficking in a hotel. Um, She's so worried about her younger brother and sister. Cares for them. Can you say a little bit about Paul and Tafia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, I'd, I'd, I'd want to say that they're not involved in, in trafficking. Leopold is involved in trafficking of drugs and, you know, different kinds of things. Um, she is a sex worker, but she chooses, you know, what she does in the hotel. And one of her concerns is that that she doesn't want her younger sister to have to make the kinds of choices she's making. And, um, you know, she has a concern for, you know, so whatever she makes in the hotel, she is making sure that the family has more than they do without, you know, the money that she brings them. Um, and so she has a concern about protecting that younger sister, Tafia, who's only 15. And readers will encounter Tafia, who has her own section as well. Um, and it's like any 15-year-old anywhere, where she's just wanting to, you know, find a best friend, be with the popular girls, you know, uh, is concerned about who she might date. Uh, but is also being preyed upon in the ways that we can imagine Sonia might have been preyed upon as a younger person. And we have moments where we see the two of them interact, where Sonia, in her return with Giordone to, uh, you know, the, that part of town where the family lives, is basically getting Tafia out of trouble, you know. Uh, but in the end, Tafia is going to go through some harrowing times, not only, you know, living through the earthquake with uh, her younger brother at her side, uh, Paul, younger of two brothers. He's actually older than her, but younger than uh, the older brother who lives in the United States in Boston, whose name is uh, Didier. Um, but she is going to live in the IDP camps, the internally displaced people camps, which sprung up you know, immediately after the earthquake, which were very insecure. And so in her storyline, the reader comes face to face with all of the insecurity in those IDP camps. And Tafia will emerge in many ways as one of the most, uh, you know, one of the most insightful characters in the novel because she'll have been through so much. And even though she's one of the youngest characters of the survivors, she'll she'll be the youngest, but who will have been through much more than some of her older, um, you know, older siblings and and friends. So the older brother that you just mentioned, Didier. He's in Boston. Well, what did it mean to you, that story? He's uh, the only one who's outside of the country when the, in the he's, story. He's one of two because Anne is also outside ah, true. Uh, but in Rwanda. Comes. But she returns. She does yeah. return. Whereas Didier doesn't have as many means. So he's a down-on-his-luck on musician. I do come from a family of musicians on my father's side. So my father and his younger brothers are all musicians, Um a younger brother is actually very well-known musicians in Haiti. Uh, and so I kind of drew from my experience growing up with musicians with, with uh, Didier, except that Didier is not successful in his bid to, uh, you know, to venture into America and become a successful musician. 
which is why he's driving uh, his friends' cabs whenever they can let him, you know, lend him a cab. And and he also has to come face to face with a kind of racism that he didn't experience in Haiti. You know, Haiti has a lot of classism and colorism, but not the kind of uh, racialized systems that that we have in the United States. And so he's also confronting racism and trying to make sense of his new position while not communicating anything that he's going through, uh, you know, to those he's left behind in Haiti. He's very close to Tafia. And so like Sonia, the older sister, he's very concerned with Tafia's future. And both of them have a little, in some ways, kind of neglected Paul. And we see that with Paul, who doesn't have his own storyline, but but erupts in other people's stories, that Paul is also at a loss as to how to assume be, becoming a man at 17 years old in this country where everything is, is falling apart. Uh, but for me, the story of Didier is a little bit uh, like mine in the sense of being outside and finding out about the earthquake from the outside, from the news. You know, so that moment when you hear, you read about him watching the Capitol fall, watching the cathedral, you know, uh, you know, on screen, because these were the first images after January 12, 2010, that, that were broadcast on CNN and Canadian, uh, you know, systems. And I think for any of us who are outside of Haiti with close ties to Haiti, Haitian or other, when we saw those buildings fall, it would be like seeing the White House here fall, you know, or a, a huge monument fall. And, and what can you think? What can you imagine? And with no other images coming out for some weeks, we knew that something catastrophic had happened. And then how do you cope with that when you don't have a means of communicating with people? And in the case of Didier, which is unlike my case, you have very few resources. And so I was trying to imagine through Didier, you know, a lot of many Haitians who have limited resources are immigrants, but are still have intimate ties to their home country and what they went through in the aftermath of the earthquake. Hmm. Um, I thought they're all heartbreaking stories, but the one that really moved me uh, to tears was the Sarah and Olivier. Can you talk a bit about Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, Olivier, and Jonas are another family group in the book, and uh, they're young parents. They lost their two youngest children, uh, daughters, immediately during the impact of the earthquake. And then her son Jonas survives for a period of time. And, and so Sarah is moved to the IDP camp with, in the knowledge that she's lost two of her children. And she's really struggling to make sense of that loss in the camp. And others like Malou, uh, a minor character named Loco, uh, and even Anne, who returns, you know, are are in many ways looking out for her and realize that she has entered a deep depression. And it's in that deep depression that we find her trying to make sense of how to live with this loss. And one of the things that's invoked in her section is a belief in Haiti that the dead are never really gone, um, that they live with us. And so she's looking for signs of those of those children and and imagines a way you know, to bring them back to life in a certain kind of way. Um, and then Olivier is her husband. Uh, they're both accountants. And um, Olivier is a, from a more well-to-do background. And he hasn't suffered the kind of losses that she has in the past. When we find Sarah, when she tells her story, 
She talks about losing her mother, losing her grandmother, and then moving to the capital to live with uh, aunts and uncles who take care of her. Um, and then she finds, you know, the love of her life, Olivier, and she's satisfied with that, as is he. But he really cannot make sense of the millions coming into the country at this time, so maybe two, three months after the earthquake, that aren't doesn't seem to be trickling down to the regular, you know, the average person. And he leaves his wife and uh, remaining son in one camp to go to another, um, which is based on a real camp, which was created to uh, decentralize Haiti to move people out of the capital and have fewer people in the capital during this period with a promise of factory work. And so he moves there and he's sort of ranting and raving about, you know, what could have been done differently in terms of, of this rebuilding period. And then, of course, we have Jonas, um, who's just turned 11 in this new year uh, in 2010, and who probably goes through one of the most harrowing experiences in the aftermath of the earthquake. Um, he has a voice in the novel, too. And Sarah and Jonas were some of the first voices that came to me uh, in a very clear kind of fashion. And I think in, in some ways, they kind of carry the heart of a novel even though they may be difficult uh, for people to read. Well, it's difficult to read of heartbreak and pain and suffering in that yeah. way. Yeah. Miriam, can you say more about how Sade's song, Bring Me Home, affected you while you <laughs> wrote this book? Yeah, yeah. I've, I think people find that surprising. But Sharday uh, is someone I've been listening to since I was 14 years old. So I'm constantly waiting for the next album to drop. And as a writer, I find that uh, she's an inspiration because she doesn't put out work until she's ready. And I sometimes go many years between books. Um, well, that she put out a CD that year, so in 2010, and that single came out, uh, Bring Me Home. And if you listen to the, uh, the words, the lyrics of that song, a lot of the imagery is about a bro- you know, broken land, a broken ground, and walking across that, that broken earth you know, and find trying to find a way home. And so whenever I heard that song, it just really, you know, it actually buoyed my, my spirits. It, it, the tone of it is very sad, you know, it's very poignant. So it matched the kind of feeling I had in the aftermath of the earthquake. But when I started writing the novel, I listened to a lot of music, again, because I grew up with musicians. Um, so I was listening to a lot of Haitian music, but I would listen to this particular song sometimes on repeat, when I was writing the most difficult parts of a novel, because it really spoke to me about this wanting to, um, you know, not only bring myself home, which I did do many times after 2010, um, but also to bring the the characters home, you know, whether they survived or didn't survive, but, but in a way that would make readers feel like even if Haiti is not their home, that they felt like they were going back to someplace they cared about and wanted to see the best for. And so that's why that, that particular song is is so mm. dear to me. I didn't know about it. Listen to it. It's a beautiful song. I'm going to suggest everybody, while you're listening to this podcast interview, turn on that song. <laughs> so uh, is there another novel in your future? There is. Um, actually, when this novel came out uh, in Canada in September and the U.S. in October, I started working on the next novel, which is tentatively titled Sisters. And um, I'm, I don't want to give much about it away, but it's basically about sisters who have the same father but not the same mother. 
and um, how their lives are very different once they discover their sisterhood. Ooh, I like it. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been a pleasure and best of luck in your writing and your teaching. Thank you so much for this interview and for bringing What Storm With Thunder to more readers, especially because um, this year, tomorrow, January 12th, is the uh, 12th anniversary of the earthquake. So if more people know about it uh, and want to reach out to people in Haiti, I think the novel is a great way for them to learn about the experience of the earthquake and maybe bring it home to themselves. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series, and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I've been talking with Miriam Chancy about her novel, What Storm, What Thunder. Thanks for listening, and may you always be immersed in a juicy novel. Happy reading!